Welcome to The New Talent Code, a podcast with practical insights dedicated to empowering change agents in HR to push the envelope in their talent functions. We're your hosts. I'm Lihia Zamora. And I'm Jason Serrato. We're bringing you the best thought leaders in the talent space to share stories about how they are designing the workforce of the future, transforming processes, rethinking old constructs, and leveraging cutting-edge technology to solve today's pressing talent issues. It's what we call the new talent code. So if you're looking for practical, actionable advice to get your workforce future ready, you've come to the right place. Hey, hey, hey. Hello, and welcome to another episode of The New Talent Code. I'm Lihia, and I'm here with my co-host, Jason. Hey, Jason. Hey, Lihia. I think uh, we're going to learn today about learning. I think we have a good show and a lot of topics to cover, but some exciting conversation ahead. I know, I know. I had extra cups of coffee. I'm so excited. But before we start our show, let me go ahead and introduce our guest, Steve Hunt. Hello, Steve. Welcome. Hello. Great to be here. First, let me share a little bit about you. Steve is the Chief Expert Technology and Work at SAP, an organization he's been with, I think, for about over a decade. But in his current role, Steve is supporting SAP's customers with understanding and managing the interaction between work, technology, and and business performance. And if that wasn't enough, before SAP, he led a team of research scientists at Kronos, now UKG, which is a talent management technology company. Believe it or not, Steve has his PhD in organizational psychology from Ohio State University. In fact, Steve is also the author of several books on technology and the workplace. His new book, Talent Tectonics, is coming out later this year. And today, we're going to be covering some of the topics he has discussed more in depth in his book. When it does come out, please check out our notes. We will include a link so you can order yourself a copy. But before we get started on today's hot topics around transforming learning into upskilling, we always start our podcast episodes with a fun question, just so that we can get to know our guests a little bit better. Jason and I are fascinated by the concept of nonlinear career paths, and we're firm believers that people can and should try different things in their careers so that they can be hired for their potential. So with that in mind... Steve, tell us a little bit about your own career path. What would you say is potentially non-traditional about it so far? Well, I guess if I went way back, my father is a cognitive psychologist, actually wrote one of the very first books on artificial intelligence in the 1960s. And uh, my mom was a career guidance counselor. So I guess you put those two together, you get an industrial organizational psychologist. But it didn't I didn't start out having any idea that the field that I'm in even existed when I was growing up. Um, I was just sort of exposed to computers and psychology just because of my parents. I actually got an undergraduate degree in applied mathematics and cognitive psychology, largely because I didn't know what I wanted to do. The great thing about a math degree is that people think you're smart, so they hire you to do other things. Amen. (laughs) There's some truth to that, too, because thank God nobody asked me to actually use my math. But when I got out, my first real job, my first job was working in sailboats in Hawaii. Then my first quote unquote real corporate job was actually as a computer programmer. And what I learned pretty quickly was two things. One, I wasn't a very good computer programmer because I wasn't good at all the detail orientation that goes into that. But the other thing that I found that I was fascinated by was not so much the programming, but why we need computer programs. And it's more specifically what you're trying to do to improve work. It wasn't applied as actually a government organization, but sort of trying to understand 
why do we need technology? What are we trying to do with it? And that led me back into psychology, which is sort of understanding why people do what they do at work. And then when I was in, got my PhD and came out, I was had all this knowledge about why people do what they do at work and then sort of ran headlong the fact that nobody used it. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> if you look at a lot of the HR technology, at least the strategic HR technology, the stuff for talent management learning, what it really does largely is it takes knowledge sort of out of like the Journal of Applied Psychology and packages it up and puts it in the hands of managers and people so they can actually use it. And, you know, and that's kind of what my career has been about. I kind of sometimes use the analogy between HR technology and GPS technology. You know, what, what, what did GPS technology do for maps? You know, we've had maps for a long time, but we didn't use them. We didn't use cartography. And what it did is it basically took all this knowledge we had and it packaged up in a way so that people could get around the world more effectively by leveraging maps as opposed to, I'm going to date myself here, the old paper maps we used to have to try to unfold and could never fold I don't know what you're up. talking about. I wasn't born <laughs> at that time. <laughs> never used them. Nope. And my career's got a zillion different twists and turns since then. But that's always been the core focus has been... How can we use what we know about people, leverage the capabilities of technology to improve the experience of work? So Steve, we're glad you're here to help us crack the new talent code. Today, we're going to talk about how the new talent code dictates that we transform learning in the workplace. And people are talking more about upskilling and actually making a clear distinction between the two. You know, what is learning and what does this mean for now as we're talking about upskilling? So along those lines, can you kind of give us just a quick history lesson or evolution on kind of how we got from learning programs based around compliance to then the shift to employee experience to now people focused on upskilling and preparing for the future? Yeah, yeah. In, in, actually, in the, in the book Talent Tectonics, I talk a lot about this. And I kind of, it starts with understanding the fundamental nature of way that work has changed. And largely because there's two big shifts that are driving this change. One is digitalization of everything. And digitalization is accelerating the rate of change in organizations. And so increasingly, we aren't hiring people for what they know. We're hiring them for what they're able to learn and adapt to. No matter kind of what job that you're in now, it's going to change over the next two or three years. The business is going to change in either a small way or maybe in a massive way. So suddenly companies are very much having to hire people and say, how can we manage people to deal with this accelerating rate of change? So that's really forcing more focus on learning and thinking about learning. The other thing also is demographic shifts. That's the other big talent tectonic shift is demographics, which is, I mean, for the first time in history in a lot of labor markets, more people are aging out of the labor market than entering it. Yet the economy continues to grow. So what this means is traditional, oh, we can go find qualified people isn't necessarily true anymore. Now companies are like really saying we have to focus more on hiring for potential as opposed to qualifications. So that's also putting a huge focus on learning. So that I think I like to start with why is this important? Why is it happening? We need to manage for adaptability and we need to get much better at building our own talent. So to your point about how is this driving changes in the technology, this is the really interesting thing. You know, my job involves working with literally thousands of companies talking about how can we use technology to address these sorts of challenges. And the one thing that isn't changing about work is people. The fundamental psychology of people is not changing. There's differences in attitudes and communication styles, but the fundamental psychology of people, we just don't evolve that fast. 
The fundamental way technology is changing is it's really, if you want to know where technology is going, understand the psychology of people. And we increasingly build technology so people can tap into their natural capabilities of people. So much of work historically has forced us to act in unnatural ways. Like think about the the training course. There's nothing natural about sitting in a classroom with 100 people taking a training course. You know, back in caveman days, if somebody wanted to build a fire, they didn't go, oh, there's going to be a training seminar on how to build a fire. And one of the big myths about people is that people aren't good at, you know, aren't good at change. That's completely wrong. That is like the competitive niche of humans as a species is our ability to adapt to changing environments. We are really good at it. Sadly, other animals aren't, which is why there's more of us every year and fewer other animals. But it's called learning. You know, it's one of the things we're born with knowing how to do. Is it fair to say too, Steve, that everybody or each person learns differently and different ways? Yes and no. We're all unique, but we're unique on common dimensions. The way I kind of talk about people, personality, style, attributes, it's like the paintings in a museum. Every painting's different, but they've all got the same basic colors. Some may have more red, some may have more blue, and they mix them together differently. And so the more you understand the different ways people might want to learn, the more you can build technology that sort of taps into that. But Steve, as we as we talk about kind of learning and transitioning to the, the label of upskilling, how do you see technology and some of the recent enhancements and capabilities helping to inform people on what to learn? I know you talked about kind of why and, and the method. How about aligning better what to learn? That's a really good point. I think when we look at learning and in, the, in my book, Talent Tectonics, I talk about this as a whole chapter on developing capabilities. But I think it starts with looking at the context, which is to make sure you're designing jobs in a way that encourages learning, if not outright requires it. That's the first starting point. I think there's an old saying you often hear in employee development. Development is the employee's responsibility. It's like, yeah, but it's a responsibility of the company to create an environment where they can develop, at least if you want an agile, adaptable workforce. And recognizing that there's a big difference psychologically between working to be productive and working to learn. That we are most productive when we're doing stuff we already know how to do. It's just repetitive, mindless work. It's not fun, but it's when you're really productive is when you're doing the same thing over and over and over again. The good news is that we're automating those repetitive tasks. And so we're asking people to do this stuff that isn't repetitive, but that's what requires learning. Learning psychologically, you need one to be exposed to a reason why you need to do it, which is why it's important to do things like hire people into jobs because they haven't done it before, but you believe they could. Give people job assignments to say, hey, this is a really important goal. I'm not going to give it to the person who's already done this five times. I'm going to give it to the person I think could do it. So that's the first part. Design jobs, assign goals, things like that in a way that supports learning. And also part of this too and is make sure managers are rewarded for developing people too. That's like a really big issue in the sort of context of learning. So it's funny, you talk about learning technology, I'd say learning technology actually starts with talent management technology, which is, are people given goals? Are they rewarded for learning, including managers? How many of your managers were promoted to management because they were good at coaching people? Usually companies laugh, none of them. Okay, well, t you know, so make sure your managers know how to coach and develop. But the other thing is, how do you reward managers for developing people? And another, I hear this time and time again, we don't. As a matter of fact, we often punish them by not backfilling the position when people are promoted out of their teams. So some of these things that you have to have in your culture. So how do you reward managers? 
for coaching and hiring for potential? Is it a bonus or is it more people like practically? I think it's probably the most important is is recognition, applauding their own career advances. They're supported. I do think that if a manager, you know, has an open headcount because they promoted somebody from within, I personally think they should go to the top of the queue for backfilling that position. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you know, I see your point. But they, yeah. but they don't. And so I think it's really just recognizing that. And and if you can't, for some reason, backfill, at least recognize them some other way. So really encourage that. Because the main reason that managers, quote, hoard talent, they blame it on these managers, like being selfish. And it's like, no, they're being intelligent. So the most important thing, the most important technology to create a learning organization, in my view, is the technology used to design jobs and manage talent. Then we get into the actual process of learning itself. And there... You touched on something that I think is often overlooked. The very first thing is, do people know what it is they should be learning? And this is where you can use different technologies that make people aware of certain skills they could acquire. There's a concept in psychology that I really wish was more widely known, which is a concept called possible self, that we all carry around with us visions of what we might become. They're not necessarily super well identified, but all of us, you can think of yourself like, there's a, wow, kind of, what do I want to be in three years? You know, and if you talk to a child, for example, and say, you know, what do you want to be when you grow up? And they say, I want to be an astronaut. That means that's a possible self. They could somehow imagine being it. Possible selves, um, when we're young, they're heavily influenced by demographic similarity. You want to see people that look like you. My wife is a doctor, family practice doctor, shared that story with me when she said, I can tell you when I first realized I wanted to be a doctor. And it was when I was about eight years old and I met, she's Puerto Rican, I met a Hispanic woman doctor. I'd never seen one before. And she said, I want to be like her. And my wife said that kind of was a triggering event in her life. So I think that's why role modeling is so important. This exposure to sort of skills that seem interesting to you. So finding ways to make people aware of things that they could learn that appeal to them. And there's a lot of stuff called opportunity marketplaces and things like that that you're seeing in technology where people can kind of explore, like, what are the things I might learn and how do they relate to it? And I think also incorporating for more inquisitive employees, you know, self-reflection techniques, I think are really useful. Gamification is an interesting way to get people kind of to play around with different ideas and explore different things they might become and sort of get into that. And then you can also, of course, get into more formal career development plans and discussions and all this sort of traditional stuff. I was going to say, as you think about kind of the capabilities of technology, you know, one of the references you gave when we were starting the discussion was like what a GPS meant to maps. So as we think about kind of what this does for the organization, but more importantly for employees... How do you see that kind of playing out in not only helping people identify aspirations, but also potentially managing or setting or driving expectations? Yeah, Eightfold is really leading the role on the whole concept of skills. And how do we get skills so people understand, you know, what are the tangible things that if I knew how to do them, they'd create more opportunity for me? And on the company side, what are the tangible things we need people to learn so that it will allow us to build our business and grow the way we want? Skills are great. At GPS example, skills are not a new thing. We've had skills, taxonomies, and you know, definitions enough for years, but nobody ever used them because they were sort of locked up in Excel spreadsheets and tended to be very hard to use and very awkward. And if you look at what artificial intelligence machine learning tools are doing to the field of skills and skills ontologies, is they're kind of like what GPS did for maps. It's taking this knowledge 
It's allowing us to more quickly update these things on the fly organically, kind of like how Waze updates traffic patterns on the fly organically. So it allows employees to get much better insight into possible career paths in sort of more real time as things are changing so fast. And it also allows companies to get a better insight into, wow, if you had this skill, then you could move into that skill and that idea of skills as a, a way to open doors into learning new skills. There's a tendency in our society to associate that with people that are earlier in their career. Even though the average tenure in professional jobs now in the U.S. is like five or six years, does it really matter if that's 50 to 55 or 25 to 35 years we want of learning and development is five years of learning and development? Not based so much on your age, this is based on your career stage and your life stage. Things that you were like excited about doing when you're just starting your career are not necessarily what you want to do when you've been working for 25 years. So for those HR leaders and hiring managers out there, I mean, you know, sometimes there's some of these concepts, it's really great, but they're like, well, gosh, I don't know how to start. How how do I create a culture of continuous learning and upskilling in my company? Where do I start? Who do I talk to? What things need to be in place? And then the counter question to that, I'm a candidate, I'm an employee, what do I look for in a company to make sure what's the criteria to make sure? Because I love to learn. I want to make sure that I join a company that provides me opportunities to continue to learn and opens up a plethora of other opportunities. It's a good question. Part of it depends on what kind of thing you want to learn, because there's a big difference between knowing something and actually knowing how to apply it. The way we build capabilities is through job assignments, is through using our knowledge. And so the other thing that you would want to look at is how does the company assign goals to people? Ask questions about how people got to where they are in the company and really good learning development. Let's go back to your non-linear careers. You'll talk to people that will say, well, I was in this role, but the great thing about this company is once you get in, you can go all kinds of different places. They're very supportive of you trying new things and doing new things. So, so talk to people about that. The other thing that I would not expect a candidate to ask, but I think it would be good to try to know is to say, is going back to our talent management conversation, how does the company make decisions that affect my career in very tangible ways around pay and promotion? This is particularly important if, like in demographic groups where you feel that you, you may experience bias, that I remember seeing somebody who was a woman focused on gender equity, and she said, we're a much better world if every female engineer coming out of college asked, convince me you're going to make decisions based on my capabilities and potential and not based off of other traditional biases. You know, so if you can get some insight into how the company actually evaluates talent, I think it's useful. It's a very sensitive topic, though. So I think it's, you got to, I, I wouldn't necessarily put that on candidates, but I would challenge companies to Use your talent management differentiator. Let people know that, hey, if you have potential, you have capability, we're going to let you, we're going to look for you. We're going to find you. And we have these tools and methods to find you. And we're going to promote you or we're going to move you into new roles. I once worked for a company that had a percentage of each person's salary allocated to learning and development. And so it was highly encouraged. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a good example. The problem you run into in companies that do that is they can allocate the time and budget, but do they, uh, do they allocate the budget, but do they actually allocate the time? That's the, the challenge. I think the best is the best is just to talk to people in the organization about what's the culture like. And if you can't quickly find a few people that came in and they've advanced their careers and they've moved to higher levels, it's probably not a good company. And you can almost feel it. Mm -hmm. 
This goes into so many different areas, though. The part of it does go on also what you're looking for a job, because in highly developmental cultures where they're expecting you to move to new things and learn all the time, what you also realize the flip side of that is often a lack of stability. You know, there's kind of an expectation you're going to move and move and move, particularly in professional jobs. So what's your advice for, for HR people listening in? I mean, how do they, if they don't already have it, where do they get started? How do they establish or build a culture of continuous learning? Well, we talked about it already. First of all, is it factored into how you design jobs? So you're designing jobs with the idea that we're going to be hiring people, not based on just what they know, but based on what they could learn. So Steve, do you think we're past the point of hiring people for jobs because they've already done that job? Uh, and I don't think we're past the point. Part of it is there's a business where you need, sometimes you just need people to come in and get stuff done, but recognize that that's a kind of a transactional hire. And often that is being done through contractors now, where it's more sort of a short term. If you're a company that wants to engage people and have people for long term, then you want to have a job where they feel a sense of development and challenge. This is a fundamental thing. It used to be people didn't expect to get to learn a lot in their jobs because they can Economics were different 50 years ago, right? But now learning is good for us. You know, change is good. It's growth. It's, it's healthy. So if you're, as an organization, saying we want to design jobs and develop people with the assumption that they're going to be doing something different in five years, it may be the same role. It doesn't mean they're not going to be in the same job role. But thinking of talent as something that's always changing. I remember one company... And I'm not a big fan of the nine box where you look people on performance of potential, but it's simple, right? And they used, they did these nine box reviews where they'd look at people's current performance and they'd also look at their future potential to do everything. And they, they did it all the way down to frontline like manufacturing positions where traditionally you wouldn't think of doing them. And the person said, the reason we did it is that we want managers to always thinking about what a person's next role or job could be. Even if they're not moving, we don't want people thinking of employees as a fixed asset. We want to be constantly thinking of employees as something that is changing and growing over time. I I often use the analogy that when, you know, we used to talk about building organizations, designing organizations, and people would use an analogy of we're going to design a building or a house, and we're going to figure out the rooms and put that out. And that is a different way to think about job design, management, and you'll see that in cultures of organizations. Does it feel like a place where everyone's always talking about not just what are you doing, but what could you be doing? I love it. I love the concept of garden and nurturing talent. I think you're dead on. So Steve, those familiar with our podcast know we always ask our guests a fascinating question. I'm so curious to know if someone had believed in your potential earlier on in your career, what else would you have done? How different would your career be? What kind of expert would you be today? This is going to sound really funny, but when I was a little kid, like in elementary school, I loved to sing. And I sang all the time, but of course, my brothers and other and his friends, they always teased me about it, right? And so when I went into seventh grade in junior high and you could sign up for music class and you could do choir or you could take like this music theory class. And I didn't do choir because everyone said, you can't sing. And Aww. yeah, it's kind of sad, right? And then years later when I was a senior in high school, I was like, I wonder, can I not really sing? I like singing. You auditioned went, for America's Got Talent and you got no, in. No, <laughs> there was no America's Got Talent back then. 
But it was like, it's so sad, such a sad story. Because I went into like my high school choir teacher and I said, I'm just curious if I can sing. And he had sat me down with a piano and he said, yeah. And he goes, where were you in seventh grade? I die for kids like you that want to be there and don't have to be there. So I kind of think that, gee, boy, if I'd taken choir, who knows what direction my life would have gone. Might have had a completely different career track. Yeah. We'd have a singer, a chef, and a cartoonist. Yeah. <laughs> You have a great voice for a podcast. Yes, you do. <laughs> Thank you, but I'm We're not. We're going to have to have you back. <laughs> the singing voice is not quite is is unrefined. Let's put it that way. <laughs> so, Steve, I think that's our time for today. This has been a great discussion. We were able to see a preview of your book, Talent Tectonics, and in that book, you cover a lot of ground and touch on a lot of topics. How can people follow you and learn more about your new book and kind of keep up with Talent Tectonics? Thank you. Talent Tectonics comes out September. You can learn about it. There's a website, talenttectonics.com. And you can find me on LinkedIn, Stephen T. Hunt on LinkedIn. And I'm pretty, pretty active out there. But I've really enjoyed the conversation. So thank you for the chance to share some of the things that I've been thinking about. We've enjoyed it too. All right. And that's a wrap. We will see you soon on another episode of The New Talent Code. Thanks for listening to The New Talent Code. This is a podcast produced by Eightfold AI. If you'd like to learn more about us, please visit us at eightfold.ai and you can find us on all your favorite social media sites. We'd love to connect and continue the conversation.